All right, so kia ora, tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou katoa. Uh, I'd like to welcome you all here to our uh, Creative Pedagogy Seminar from uh, the University of North Carolina, Greensboro. Uh, currently, uh, it is uh, 61 degrees and we've got a sunny, sunny skies in Greensboro, North Carolina. So as I quirkily do, I like to ask uh, our two guests, where they are and what their weather is like. So first, uh, how about you, uh, Tristan? What do we got there in Wyoming, buddy? Well, um, I was just looking on my phone, the temperature. Um, it's now 40 degrees in Wyoming. I don't know if any of you visited Wyoming. We have quite extended winters, definitely more extended than North Carolina. Um, but uh, no snow right now. There is very little snow around, uh, but we do some this weekend. So ski season fortunately finished early this year, right. which is a bit of a bugger, but uh, that's okay. We, we can still get out Nordic skiing. We just, the downhill ski resort near us is closed. So right. welcome to Wyoming. Thank you, Tristan. Uh, Peter, hasty. Hey, yes, we're at 82 and sunny. But we're on central time. All right. So just after All four right. o'clock. 30 miles from the eastern time border. So in the winter, it gets dark really quickly, really early. Like before five o'clock, it's black. So this is good to be getting towards out of that domain. Right now. And Peter, your uh, sound is... Uh breaking up a little bit. So just in terms of the uh, breaking podcast. Um, yeah, I think Pete, what, what we decided was um, Peter, obviously I'm not going to speak for him. We are going to talk to and fro a little bit. Um, Peter's done obviously a lot of the lion's share of the work in terms of development of the model since Seedentop's um, conceptualization in the early nineties. And so we thought it would, because it's a creative pedagogies class, really for Peter to talk about some of the features in the model and then what he's done in terms of writing in, in the several iterations about the, from the book about the model itself. Let's, you know, as a creative pedagogy, why is it creative? What it, what's creative about it? And so I thought um, Peter and I discussed this and maybe he could make a start. Um, just, just so you all know, Ben and I share the same doctoral advisor, Mary O'Sullivan, which is um, so you, yeah, from, from, from Limerick, separated by about 35 years looking at Dyson and myself. But yeah, Mary was, a, I think Mary was his advisor in 1947. So there you go, Ben. Oh, yeah. Sorry about that, Ben. I that, that, make a dig there because we have our Irish contingent here. That's fine, mate. Peter Hasty, <laughs> let's take it away. Auburn. All right. Good afternoon, everybody. <clears throat> I've been represented by my two year gang and youngsters there, uh -huh. commonly known as the ninjas. Um, so when when Daryl first conceptualised sport education, his first presentation of the idea was at the Commonwealth Games Conference in Brisbane in 1982. Uh -huh. And the, the essence of the whole genesis of the model was that the way that he saw young people engaging in sports units in schools really didn't include 
any of the things that makes it really exciting, either as a participant or even as a spectator. So he saw you do these drills, and then right at the end, you might get to play a game if the teacher thinks you're good enough. And in those days, it was always, oh, no, no, they're not ready. They're not good enough to play. We have to practice, practice, practice. Um, but he said that, like, for example, when those same young people went to Friday night football, you know, the big thing in the US or watched it on TV, they saw elements of sport that was completely absent in physical education, i.e., that you actually played for the same team the whole time versus just daily, just randomly get together and play. That the games actually counted for something, like there was a, an, a consequence of the way you played. Um, there was this high level of festivity and enjoyment. And, and so what he decided to do was to come up with some sort of model where you would take all of the things from community sport that were attractive and why people participated or followed it. And then put that in physical education with the caveat that it would become an educational experience. So it wasn't sport, it was sport education. And the three big modifications were one, that everybody plays all the time, this participation requirement. I remember one year I played under 13 soccer and I was a two goal player so if we were losing by two at the end, they'd put me in. And if we were winning by two, they'd let me play. But that was the only time I ever really hit the field. So if we were losing by a couple, I'd hope the other team would score, then I might get to play. <laughs> so in an educational experience, you can't justify having some people play and not. Secondly, the competition and the format of the games was developmentally appropriate. So you wouldn't do 11 aside where, you know, only the better ones got to touch the ball. It was more small-sided and there's tons of research on the efficacy of small-sided games. And then the other big difference that he added was this idea that he wanted to give young people the complete sport experience. He wanted them to be, in his terms, a complete sports person, sports player. And so he developed this idea of roles. Now, in the first iterations of the book, team roles didn't exist. Formally, we, we came up with that in the second edition just by sort of happenstance. So traditionally, you'd play and then you'd officiate. And so you'd have a, ref, you'd have a referee and scorekeepers and statisticians, and you might have <clears throat> other variations of that. But, that. but originally, his idea was that you'd play and then you'd officiate. And then you'd, within your team, you'd have someone that would lead practices. Well, as teachers started to run with this, they really started to expand this whole idea of roles um, to announcers, um, a lot of advocacy efforts. So teams would develop um, poster boards. At the university level, we had a, one class where we taught the students how to design and create and manage web pages where they did that. That was completely new because in the, early, the 94, the first book came out, the internet didn't exist. So there wasn't even any websites or any form of hmm. communication. That's why I moved to the US from Australia, because essentially the lack of ability to coordinate with other people. So as teachers ran with it, they started to come up with new ideas. And the first, probably the first big move was this idea of we had team roles. So you did things that contribute to the running of the team. Equipment manager, fitness leader, 
uh, trainer, athletic trainer, publicist, all those sorts of issues. And then you'd have your officiating role. So that was probably the first, what you'd call creative pedagogy. The other foundational feature of his original model, the 94 one, and then of course the next edition didn't come out till 2004. So we had a bit of groundwork on it then. The first study, I actually did the first one in 96. And I asked him, I called him, I said, like, we need to do some, he said, I said, what do we do? And he said, run a season and study the hell out of it, right? Just measure everything that happens. Just to give me a really good descriptive account of what happens when students do it. Um, so one of the, the next innovation from that, again, was from a teacher here in Auburn, his original idea that fair play would be a central part of the process because he wanted people to be, you know, competent, literate and enthusiastic, the big three mantras. And part of that literacy was understanding about being a good sports player and the notion of fair play. But it was never formally introduced into the league tables. So in the original sport ed seasons and all the ones that were done in the Australian and the New Zealand trials, the win-loss record was the league table, same as regular sport. Well, what we did is we had teachers, particularly in the elementary slash primary level, that started to introduce all of these new different ways in which teams could accumulate points for the league table. Managerial tasks, did they come in, did they do their warm-up on time, did they bring their mascot, did the equipment manager do their job, point, 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 and they had call it power ratings. So that made its first appearance in the first book in 2004. So this expanding of not only roles, but expanding on how a season was developed. And I don't know anyone that does a season now where win-loss is the only criterion for success. It's kind of like just disappeared out of the, out of the sky. Um, so that was kind of the next one. Then we started to get like over the top creative and start particularly in the upper grade, fifth, sixth elementary level to introduce classroom content. And it, it became possible as it was, this was a way for the teams to link their mascot or even the unit with something they're doing in class. So the first one we did was biomes. And this was double initiative because what we did is we made it second, third, fourth, and fifth grade all at once. And each class, the students became members of six animal teams, and that class was a habitat. So Mrs. Brown's fifth grade class was grasslands. So we had fish, birds, reptiles, mammals, amphibians, and arthropods. So if you're in the grasslands, and you're in the birds team, your team name had to be a bird that lived in the grasslands, a plains bird, like ostriches or something, right? If you're in the tundra, which was a fourth grade class, then your bird, mammal, reptile, etc., had to be from that um, habitat. And so it went. And remember, one kid was really disappointed. He wanted, like, the Dickens to be a mountain, spotted mountain salamander but they didn't live in the habitat that his class belonged to. So we had birds teams 
all the way through second through fifth and mammals and reptiles. So it was vertical streaming. Each class was its own biome. And what the kids had to do is the teacher would give them uh, tasks. Now, what we did is I met with all the teachers in this PD day and everybody agreed to do their life sciences content in science during that month. So, and all of the tasks were related to um, their course of study in science. So for example, was second grade was one, one task, skin, fur, feathers, scales, what does your animal wear? Right, so each team had to do a little bit of research on their particular animal from its protective coating or, the, or its you know, outer exoderm. Mm -hmm. Then in fourth grade, it, uh, third grade, it was who eats who and who gets eaten by who. So the class had to do an analysis of, okay, we've got, because um, there's big classes in Alabama because we have physical education every day. So you might have, we had, um, I think 12 teams in a class, two of each. So they had to do this big web of who in our class was got eaten or ate somebody else of those species that lived in, for example, the ocean, right? So the sharks that eat the seals, the seals that eat the fish, the fish that eat the plankton, whatever. So the teachers came up with that and then the students had to report and then they'd add stuff to their big team board that was in the gym. And then each group had to make their mascot depending on what the art class medium was doing. So it wasn't like just draw or paint because fourth graders weren't doing drawing, they were doing multi-dimensional, three-dimensional models. Um, fifth grade had to do stuff out of um, recyclables to create their mascots. Third graders, I think, drew whatever. So it was, we didn't compromise any of the academic curriculum from the other courses to do this. So anyway, that's how it went. And then he's, he's replicated it in all sorts of different ways. I mean, the next year they did, what he does is he asks the teachers, is there an element of their curriculum that needs reinforcing? So the next year they did math. And so the, instead of mammals, birds, reptiles, he had money, geometry, algebra, um, operations, etc. And there were some really cool names in that. One of them, one of the money teams was called Bad Credit. <laughs> um, and um, anyway, so, and then another teacher at another school got wind of it and he, he did the same thing. Uh, one of his seasons was Diseases of the Oregon Trail, which is a fifth grade social studies content for Alabama. And their teams were like dysentery, cholera, diarrhea. You know, they had, to, they had to find out how many of their team died before they made it to the end of the trail. And, and he'd pull these cards that, you know, like, sorry, Johnny, you can't play today because you've got dysentery. Um, your team's short. How are you going to deal with it? That sort of stuff. So this, this adding of content from other areas sort of took off. And then to go sort of semi-extreme, we had a teacher in England who taught seventh grade boys French, very resistant. So he did his whole French curriculum through... We call it um, French, French ed, French sport ed. So they were in groups. They named themselves after French soccer players. Um, he had different roles. Of course, he had the dictionary manager. So one of those was the, the young person from the team that could go to the 
to the dictionary, but he couldn't bring it back to the table. He had to find the word, memorize it, learn it. And they had MVP of their thing. They had homework managers. They had sorts of tasks. So it's grown beyond um, that to even have little forays into other subjects. When I taught math in Australia, I taught physical education and math. Um, that would have been really cool to do, you know, have group challenges and whatever. So that's another creative pedagogy. Um, the Portuguese folks, led by Tristan's very first foray into the development of student coaches, one of the studies he did with Mary, um, have looked at a lot of ways about how they can enable and empower and educate knowledge-wise these student coaches, because it was one of the original components of the model, but very much underrepresented in the early work and nobody really looked at too many interventions about how we could train student coaches. So that was one. And then probably the most recent set of um, investigations, I guess now is, well, okay, so go back to Australia more later and it's happened in Alabama too, where they've got students to design their whole season. Like go from scratch, pick your sport, pick your roles, pick your competition format, do the works and, and teams have negotiated and they've had, uh, I ran one through a series of committees. We were, the focus in that one was on um, participatory democracy. So we had a rules committee, um, a competition committee. And what happened was that they would, I'd give them a task, like how are we going to score the league? What would be the rules about where are we going to put the hockey goals? Will we put them behind? They would discuss, they'd come up with a, a resolution, then the class would vote on it and that became the rule. So they co-constructed the, the season. So turning over opportunities for young people to have input into how the season worked. Right? And they were all way beyond the original intent of the model. Right? It was meant to be you know, a replication of regular sport, but with the modifications for inclusion, um, competency development and, and learning more about sport. But as we've got creative people to play with it, um, uh, and there's been a lot of technology integration as well. Uh, we, we did a transcontinental season. So we had kids from Alabama, Spain and Portugal, all concurrently doing a handball unit. And every Friday they'd Skype with their partner team I think we had birds, reptiles, and mammals. Um, so the aves in the Spain and the birds in Alabama and the aves in Portugal. One, one Friday, the, the Spanish kids and the American kids would Skype. The next Friday, the Spanish would go with the Portuguese. The next week, the Portuguese would go with the Americans. It's a little bit tricky. It was good because the first lesson of the day in Alabama was the last lesson of the day in the Iberian Peninsula. So that worked. And the, and the most fun thing about all of that, particularly, was the Latino kids in Alabama who normally are sort of immigrant, poor. They were the ones that were the stars because they could talk to the Spanish kids mm. because they're all Mexican and Guatemala. Mm. They, their status just went through the roof, whereas normally they'd be the most marginalised. So that was pretty cool. And then the European kids go, those Americans can't speak a second language and we can because they spoke in English a lot of the time. 
<laughs> so it was a bit of a wake-up call to the local children that they're actually second language deficit, which was good, a bit of an eye-opener. So that's probably, um, you know, as I said, you've got, so you've got a curriculum design issue in terms of, so it's not necessarily creative pedagogy, it's a creative curricular design. Mm -hmm. And then the, the focus of units and um, the structure of different seasons. And so all of that has worked its way into the 2020 version of the book because we completely redesigned the way we would present the text many more chapters, many shorter chapters, um, three parts, what the model is, how you do it, and then how you can extend it. So from a little weenie book in 94, it's now a pretty robust sort of thing full of mm -hmm. web ancillaries and all those different actions. Did I miss anything, Tristan? Huh. No, I well, think... Uh, I, can I just pop in and just say, uh, make sure you do do a good ad for your book on this podcast, Peter. So uh, coming up, it's it's out now, is it? Yeah, it was. It's been out for a while. It was out in twenty nineteen, even though it's got a twenty twenty imprint. It was available okay. at the last Shape Conference. Great. Yeah, and you know when you talk about all these different things that teachers and students have done, a lot of that is, I'd say, good pedagogical work. It's you know, it's taking the curriculum and extending it through different pedagogical approaches or tasks. Anyway, Tristan, you were going to say. Yeah, I think Peter's done a good job of extending the curricular aspects. He's talked about the cross-curricular um, piece. I think what I've done is really work within the frame of generally PE, um, but also connected to other physical activity opportunities, not necessarily cross-curricular um, and really just trying to work with the model uh, and, and the fact, and I don't know how Ben, you really define what a creative pedagogy is. Um, as an ex high school teacher, um, I got involved with this model. Um, Daryl came over to the UK, um, gosh, that's a while ago now, but he, he were trialing it. They had sports colleges at that time in the UK and I was a teacher at one and uh, which was just a regular high school to get extra funding for physical education and sport. And just the whole idea, it was a, to me a big paradigm shift, the whole responsibility aspect of the model, the way that we've, we, that Daryl and obviously with Peter's work, um, infused aspects of sport that we'd lost or got decontextualized in the way we represented in PE. I think that was an innovation for me as a teacher um, now learning the model was a journey and, and when I deal with my pre-service teachers them learning to do the model what 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 Peter talks about is really advanced work in terms of mm -hmm. the teachers comfort in the structural features of the model and the pedagogies but that's a journey and I think mm -hmm. uh, for, the, for those of you who have experienced this model in your undergraduate program it's you know it, it's it's a it's it's a paradigm shift for many of these teachers mm -hmm. even in relation to other ways that they learn to teach um, because of the whole nature of devolving some responsibility to students and what does that end up looking like mm -hmm. and how do I manage that? And so I think the work that I've done is predominantly being with the student coach role, but then really then what do kids take out of that experience? What, what should they or could they take out of that experience? And so 
I think, uh, as I say, Peter's been very creative in the way he's expanded the model beyond even the confines of physical education. And so um, it, it has some really neat features and particularly the group-based piece that obviously Ben's work with, I'm sure he's talked about as yet cooperative learning. It has very much some of the similar interdependency pieces, the group contingencies embedded, which really get kids to buy in. Not every kid buys into it, um, but I think those those structures are in place. And, that, and so for me, that's a definition of a creative pedagogy in the fact that you create contingencies in those environments to make to allow learning in the different domains affective cognitive social um you know uh psychomotor so i think that's why i would i would classify it as a creative pedagogy model uh, so. yeah now we would classify it as that too and we have a very broad definition of of pedagogy in this class and we sort of draw on some, you know, that social critical work of Richard Tinning, actually, uh, Peter Hastie's uh, country mate, uh, and also a former Buckeye, I might add, um, where he talks about the work that gets done in learning and, 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 and in teaching. Uh, and so, uh, you know, where students, and what Peter was talking about before, where students actually design their own seasons you know, that is uh, pedagogical work that they're doing to develop uh, a season and a, a uh, activities and tasks that they want to do based on their knowledge and understanding, but also uh, their shared work together. And it's very similar to a lot of work that we've talked about in cooperative learning, as you said, the positive independence. Yeah. So do, do you want to carry on and uh, talk a little more or do you want questions from students? how we place Peter or Tristan? Um, yeah, so what I did is uh, we shared two articles. Hopefully you've had a chance, but one, I didn't want this session to be just me and Peter talking, but really for you to sort of engage with the content a little bit. And so we shared a, a recent, relatively recent, um, I did a review years back as part of my PhD uh, in 2004, but we, we did a reiteration about where we are in relation to the three main goals of the model, which is competence, um, literacy, sorry, literacy, enthusiasm, mm -hmm. and yeah, and, and competent. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted your sense as if you, as you read that article to get your, to get your sense of the journey, because it's a journey about the model in terms of the research we've done, but it's also to me, I think it's an in, interesting way that research develops over time and this sort of complexities of the designs to answer slightly different questions re related to a particular topic within a mo within a model um, and Peter's um, probably most responsible for this but sport education is the most research model uh, out there by a, by a long way and so we have a lot of empirical data to support some of the assertions we make about the models it, it impact, particularly on students and to some extent how teachers learn to use the model as well. So teacher education. Um, so I, 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 prompt, I want to give you folks an opportunity to kind of get a, to see what you understand about that piece. Um, and particularly, so looking at those core, 
goals of sport education be competence, literacy, and enthusiasm. Let's start with competency. Um, what was the focus of those initial studies? I mean, you're talking now in the, as Peter says, in the mid nineties, early nineties, and how have they evolved over time? And then obviously taking competence as one aspect or core learning goal of the model. What were Peter and I's kind of recommendations for moving forward? So I just wanted your sense of understanding about that journey from the article. So it's open to anybody to chime in. So we call this wait time. And then I always say to my students, I have a limited wait time and then I have a magic finger. I point at somebody to answer. So we can do either. We can do a longer wait time because obviously you're not familiar with me uh, or Peter, but uh, feel free to chime up. I love when people make reference to the wait time um, because I am constantly do it in my head as well. Um, so again, you know, as someone who comes to the table knowing virtually nothing about this, I appreciated um, both articles because of how they did sort of walk us through this feeling like the history of how these three pieces, these three main goals um, had evolved. And, you know, speaking of the competence one and really sort of of all of them, it, 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 it felt like it had gone in, in, that it had followed sort of what research had done. So we start in these places of, you know, teacher and student interview, and it's just really sort of simple and concrete. And then we move it forward. Um, and sort of, it felt like moving away from this entirely empirical and quantitative world more towards the voice of the students and the voice of these teachers as they were working towards these goals. So I, you know, I appreciated that um, about, about this article and that, again, as a, um, a you know, a, a math teacher and a middle school person, you know, I was looking for these three things too. Um, so Peter, when you started talking about how this crossed over cross-curricularly, um, I, I look forward to talking more with you about that. Thanks, Jennifer. Um, Anything specifically about the, for you, physical education folks, about say competence, what was the early foci and how has that evolved over the last 20 years? And is that replicated in the field as a whole? Yeah. When we look at competence. I think, uh, so, sorry, based on my reading, so the uh, previous research are just, are focused on the overall skill development mm -hmm. among the students and later on, and also the recent research and they focus on different, you know, different, uh, the improvement between, uh, between the different skill levels of students. And also uh, the, they are starting to look at the specific variables such as genders. And also uh, the student coaches, uh, you know, their pedagogy content knowledge, the development of students coaches pedagogy content knowledge is also research focus. Uh, for the recent studies uh, around, social, uh, around the sports education. And also uh, uh, the, the recent uh, might be the future research are also uh, looking at the, uh, how, uh, how the student coach to teach students to develop the tactical knowledge uh, in the game-based task. It's not only, not only uh, the skill-based, but also tactical-based knowledge. Mm -hmm. 
how, how student coach to teach uh, the other students or players tactical knowledge uh, in, a effect, in a effective ways. So yeah, that's my understanding. Yeah. Good, that's a nice summary. Thanks, Eddie. What about the, let's take that student coach role, seeing as that's my area in 07, I looked, I looked at that with a sort of didactic lens, which is a French-based methodology. Anybody used um, peer teaching or peer coaching as a methodology and any, any reflections on that, I think, which is a key facet of the model? I think, uh, Tristan, just from my own experience of maybe adopting that type of approach in phys ed settings, um, you know, you can't just throw it onto the student, so to speak. Uh, and I know I would have struggled with trying to, as a teacher, trying to teach my students to assume these, uh, these roles of uh, these leadership roles or these coaching roles uh, with peers as well, and not just that they wouldn't have the knowledge themselves, but that the peers would reject them, uh, would reject their, their roles as well too. Um, so I think, you know, as I said, when I tried to maybe implement sport ed, I've really only tried to implement, when I was a teacher, implement sport ed approaches in different instances, and uh, it takes a lot of time to nurture it uh, and uh, with kids and for them to be uh, to be competent uh, in these roles that you're trying to trying to give them as well too, you know. I think that's a great reflection. I think that my, during my early trials, I was like, "Wow, this is really cool. I'm giving these kids these responsibilities," but then it it would sometimes fall flat. And so learning to get learning to teach them how to take the roles on and do them effectively, I think is is an on you know it's it's an understated part of the success of the model. Any other thoughts on sort of the peer teaching aspects embedded in the model? I suppose when you think about the peer teaching element and Tristan, I mean, um, and some of the earlier stuff as well through 90s early, it was 2004, I think you did the review. Um, a lot of the early stuff would have focused on this idea of, of skill and, and a focus on skill and I suppose when you're thinking about peer teaching as well, there's, there's student relationships at play here and what I suppose more not later work or more recent sport ed work has kind of shown is the need to kind of nurture these types of relationships that the students are having uh, with each other as well too that may not have been uh, a key focus at the, in the early stages of sport ed. Yes, I think we, we over, uh, oversimplified the complexity of our gymnasiums and the social status that... Uh, and, and what the motives that kids bring into those gymnasiums or classrooms. And I think so, I think that touches on the literacy aspect. And so this is an interesting, this, remember, uh, when Daryl came up with this idea of being literate, this is before the sort of recent phenomena of physical literacy. And, and then they're not necessarily to be confused together. I think mm -hmm. they, they're, they're, they're not defined the same way. And that's really important. But um what do you understand by this literacy aspect? How that that students are literate as a function of experience in the model? In terms of competency, Christian, is it? No, the, I was thinking more of the literacy. You know, the competent, literate, enthusiastic. What do you understand by how do I, how do I know when I see it hmm. when when kids are literate? as a function of an experience in a model like sport education, what kind of things would I be looking for if I'm, if I'm sort of evaluating literacy in terms of how it's defined by Daryl in terms of this model? 
because we took that as one goal in that paper. Any thoughts? I'll chime in. Hopefully my voice will stay with me tonight. Um, I, I view this, and I guess you can parallel this with health literacy, physical literacy, all the different things, these wonderful buzzwords that we have in education now, but that are, are students able to uh, experience and exude these big ideas of the model and the, the big benchmarks or outcomes of the model. Such as what? So, so give me so if, if teamwork is a part of it, if, if it's playing the different role. So when you look at the, the, the different aspects that he has, I think what's really interesting and with the research, you know, when you start with the model, uh, actually even earlier today, Jennifer and I were talking about sport ed as I was taking my kids for a walk since we are dealing with COVID-19. <laughs> we have lots of <laughs> physical activity breaks with my two kids. Um, but the, the whole idea of, you know, a couple different things. So first and foremost, and Ben, you know, to put a feather in, in your cap with the whole uh, cooperative learning and, and how cooperative learning is embedded in so many different models. And I'm, I'm even curious, Ben, if, if and of all the research you've done is, is how to compare the the fidelity of cooperative learning throughout the different types of models. So when I, when I think about, you know, the, the true uh, embodiment of having sport literate and you know, those who appreciate and value all those aspects too, it's just not getting together to play a game. It's, it's all the different, you know, how we appreciate sport, how we appreciate the different roles of sport. You know, I'm always thinking I'm always big for the underdog and I'm looking for those wonderful stories. Even when I was teaching elementary physical education, great. I mean, it got to a point where, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, because of the lack of time that I had, I could not uh, implement all elements of sport education, but there were different things I could cherry pick, if you will. And the one thing is, is it, it got away from the score and it got more into how did we cooperate? How did my students show that they were able to take on this role? And, uh, you know, I think one game, for example, or one activity we would play is our rendition of Omnican Ball. And, and, and the whole idea of how, you know, teams work. And, it, and if anything, we got more points for giving other teams and other people compliments. So I think when the, the students can embody these elements of the model, uh, it really shows how much they have embraced and they are empowered by the situation. Jennifer, we're talking, it's like some of these models, we read about it, it's in a book, you know, I'm teaching undergrads, I can never say, here's a model, boom, you know, and, and throw it in the middle of class. You have to be able to scaffold it in a way that makes sense. So I think that literacy piece, even as you evaluate it, it has to be scaffolded based on where they are in the entry and the, their familiarity with the sport ed model. Good, good, yeah. I think it again is broadly defined, but it really is about those interpersonal relationships, their adoption of inclusion, you know, pedagogies, fair play, that whole nature and essence of the wider experience of a sport culture. And I think sort of Darrow is kind of very purposeful, and, and Peter can chime in at any point on this too, about that was a bigger goal, it's a broader, broader goal of the learning experience. Um, that was, you know, he didn't just replicate youth sport, but he took hopefully some of the better aspects of youth sport and embedded them in a model that, that, that embraced wider goals beyond just winning and competence, that, that embraced that idea of literacy uh, and the nature of the true essence of a sport experience or an authentic sport experience. Um, 
Good. And the last one, I guess, I don't know if Peter wants to chime in. Yeah. One of the things way back in the early, early, early parts, like even back in the 94 one, Mm -hmm. was, and it sort of has phased out a little bit, I guess, is what happens when young people have continued ongoing experiences with sport education over years. And his goal there, and this is sort of the literacy one wrapped up, was that when they became the stakeholders in young in kids' sport, that they would take out all of those negative aspects like parents yelling at refs, lack of, um, you know, concern about playing time and transfer the things that, they, that they'd experienced that made sport good as stakeholders in youth sport. So they would have things like, which you see in some places, for example, parent code of conduct. Um, there's some soccer leagues in Florida where your kids can't play unless the parents have gone through some sort of how to behave training. But his, he wanted his, his like gold standard way, way beyond just the early participation was that these, that, that people that have experienced sport education consistently and over time would become good stewards for really good youth sport. I mean, that was his big, big long-term time. You know, you can't, you can't get that from just one experience. Just another thing quickly on the research side of it, um, the early stuff tended to be focusing on measurables, you know, like um, fair play and affiliation. But the more recent stuff is way more um, messy, qualitative, getting in. I mean, we now do things like where we put GoPros on kids in teams and record all the interactions because they're not, they're going to say, they're not going to say stuff when the teacher's there. So you have to capture, capture them in other cases to do that. And one of the guys from Portugal did a year long study with his seventh graders and looked specifically in that study on all the changes on how they interacted with each other and how they perceived equity. And it was a really, really good piece that if any of you ever want to read it, it's in sport education and society. But that was a very much a, a high quality piece about how to set up a, a design, I guess, where you would start to get at some of those really tricky questions. Rather than, you know, do they play more fairly? Do they give more positive comments? Which we did at the beginning because we wanted to know that they could do that, obviously. But it like like the competency we're now starting to look at what are the key mechanisms that lead to it. We know that it, that you can get more competent. We know that we can train student coaches to be a bit better, but what's the necessary underpinnings of the pedagogies that we need to develop that competency? So one of the more recent things is this whole idea of graded competition, which was mentioned in the book. Graded competition means that, you know, you play against others of equal ability. So I had a PhD student who graduated two years ago, just did a really good experimental study on what happens when you put high and lows together and when they play within their own groups. And it's quite staggering what happens to young low skill kids when they're in a mixed group, they just plummet. Um, But 
again, looking at what are the features, what, what do we need to be able to put in place to help youngsters learn those literacies rather than can they develop them? Yes. But what are the critical incidences and what are the key pedagogies that are needed to help them do that? And I think that's for the first two, for, for competence and literacy, because they're kind of learned behaviours. Enthusiasm is more of a, a little bit outcome variable. It's a bit different. And it's the one that's the most um, substantiated easily by far. There's, there's, no, there's no question now whether when young kids do sport education, whether they prefer it to other forms of at least games instruction. Hey, right. thanks, Peter. That's really good. I think, I mean, can you just give us the author of that paper from Portugal so people listening to the podcast would be able to easily find it? Yeah, what I'll do is I'll text the reference and put it on the list on the That'd Zoom. That'd be great. Yep. Cheers. Yeah, Appreciate it. Just, it's the same author, Claudio Farias, his name is. And, okay. and he was Peter's doctoral student, but um, we talked about this long-term goal of that Daryl said about literate, you know, past this experience and he managed to do this one year where he kept the kids in this as coaches across multiple sports in the same role. And he did this one year sort of intensive sport education experience. And um, there's a piece came out in research quarterly that I helped him sort of frame a little bit his data. And he went back to and interviewed those children that children there were seven, I think there were seventh graders at that time, I think Peter. And then four years later, looking at this long-term effect, did they become activists? For a, sport, for a proactive sport culture. And so it was from some really interesting, really cool data, really cool data. Not that you folks doing your PhDs are gonna get that type of data. You, you don't have the timeline for that. But I think it came out in RQ this, this year, uh, Claudio, and really interesting what these kids, because they went from this one year in, intensive sport education experience, because Claudio was the teacher researcher he left, he finished and left the school or, uh, and, and Peter can, if I'm wrong, please correct me, Peter. Um, but then four years later, went back and interviewed the kids about what happened in subsequent PE. How did you become, how did you take from this experience and how they become, how they became activists? Mm -hmm. They got these roll out the ball teachers um, back in PE and, mm -hmm. How did these kids respond to that who'd been so used to this sort of embedded sport education, sort of creative pedagogy? Mm -hmm. And so they became, a number of them became activists. They would organize the PE class because the, the teacher was not doing anything. And so it was really interesting, this whole idea about activism and literacy. Um, and so if you're interested, that his data is really, really cool data about mm -hmm. follow-up. We don't, you know, one of the challenges, if we do curricular interventions in research, they're, mm -hmm. they're time intensive enough, but then do we ever follow up with long-term effects and maintenance of, of whatever those outcomes are? And so that was, that was a piece that came out. And I can forward you that reference if you're interested in that. Really getting at that bigger question about being sport, act, sport activists if you have a, an embedded curricular experience of this type of model. Um, and so, yeah, I'd like to add that. To Kristen Peter's. and Peter, that'd be great. And, you know, for the podcast, uh, we'll uh, have the papers available and also uh, this uh, audio recording. Uh, but I remember listening to Daryl back in 1994 in classes and 
he was all about this good sports citizen and students making it their own. And he quite, you know, he often said teachers and people like Jim Sweeney, you know, who was a longtime faculty member there at uh, Ohio State, they really taught him. So he learned from teachers, you know, he admitted it wasn't just his, all his own. So, you know, when kids would go and make it their own or, or design their own games, I think he, he's going to love that kind of progression for it, Peter, right? I mean, that's, you know, what he wanted all along, wasn't it? Yes. Uh, even even when, they, when kids played in the backyard, for example, they'd have a bit of a better understanding of, you know, how to go about your business. Mm-hmm. I got banned from cricket for a week by, in the backyard because I, um, I think we only needed a few runs to win. All I had to do was hit it on the road and then we changed teams. But I grinded it out for about 30, 40 minutes and they said, no, you can't play for the rest of the week. I just sent yeah. everybody, if you look on the chat link on the bottom, yeah. uh, that reference. Excellent. Yeah, so I was thinking, you did you bowl underarm, Peter? Is that why you got kicked out? No, actually, there's a story about that because... Scratch during, the ball. During that very match, as that was happening, I said to my sister, I was watching it, wouldn't it be amazing if he did bowl underarm? It'd be impossible to lose. And sure enough, he did. Yeah. That's 1980s. That's a long way back for some folks. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, a lot of people won't understand that, but... I, so we, let's uh, crank it up and move it on a little bit. Um, uh, yeah, sorry, I've just forwarded you the uh, the, the reference for the one I just talked about. Appreciate Project it. changed my Excellent. life. Cheers. Okay, all right. Um, we talked a little bit about um, the the article sort of about hybridization. Mm-hmm. And this is an interesting, mm-hmm. I think this is interesting when we talk about creative pedagogies mm-hmm. because I don't know how Ben's framed this whole seminar, but um, maybe he's taken it by each model. I don't know. I haven't seen his syllabus. Um, but what do, what do you understand by hybridization and why is that a contented, contested space? Mm-hmm. Any thoughts yeah. on that? So uh, Tristan, sorry you haven't seen the uh course outline uh i will flick it to you because you will be interested <laughs> i thought i'd send it to you but we we've looked at some of the in, uh, pedagogical models or the pedagogical practices but also we've looked at other pedagogies for example we've looked at lgbgt and Q plus queer we have looked at indigenous pedagogies we've looked at social critical theory as a pedagogy from richard pringle in australia so um we and then we've looked even at like pedagogical content knowledge with Phil Ward uh, and Roland uh, Massier from Switzerland. So, just you know, saying that uh, there's a lot of good work done in in pedagogy, and I think uh, we we see it as a very broad definition. So I'm sure that the students will have interesting things to say about hybridization because uh, you know I think a lot of teachers who end up doing any one of the uh, classic uh, pedagogical models like sport ed or cooperative learning or TPSR or TGFU, they do hybridize it often. And uh, so, yeah, students, comments. Um, yeah. Okay. No, Sangin, you can go, yeah. Oh, in my understanding, I think um, theory makes conceptual framework and then, and then concept, that conceptual 
framework can create models like specific pedagogical models. So I think um, under one um, s same theory or conceptual framework, I think teacher can uh, make, I don't know how to pronounce that word, hybrid hybridization. Yeah, it's not the best yeah. word. Yeah. So I could have chosen more, more easier word to say. <laughs> That's what academics do. We make us, yeah, there you go. Yeah. So I think teacher can combine two models uh, in order to make new models to deliver uh, one specific conceptual framework or one theory. But I think there is always possibility that um, the core, the essence of one pedagogical models can be um, a little bit, I don't know how to say, but maybe ruined or be lost uh, through that kind of practice. Yeah, and I guess that's why it's a, why is it contested space then? I use that word purposefully. Mm -hmm. This whole idea is it okay to hybridize models? Do we lose the essence of one? But does that really matter if the student learning outcomes are in, are reinforced? Mm -hmm. What you know, and we we talked Peter and I talked a little bit about that, particularly the game based approach. How we've been, how there's been innovations to embed that. Just any thoughts on that? Well, I use the expression pulled pork sometimes when it comes to hybridization. Uh, and the idea that when you start pulling things, it comes off the bone. Um, and I know from my own experience, maybe as a teacher, uh, it's hard enough to uh, learn one model in isolation, uh, let alone trying to uh, you know, hybridize uh, uh, two. Uh, and I think then the danger is, I mean, when it's done correctly, of course, it can work. And uh, there's a, another article there recently there, a systematic review done by um, Javier Fernandez-Rio and his students in Gonzalez-Velores, Sixto Gonzalez-Velora there on, uh, in Ypres. Uh, and I mean, it works. Uh, there's, it, it, um, there's an advantage for hybrid over isolated pedagogical implementation. But that all completely depends on... Um, uh, teachers' commitment, their training, their experience, uh, in order for it to be a success. Uh, and I think if you know, if I'm thinking as a teacher, and I go back to my idea of pulling pork, is that when you start pulling it off the bone, you can't put it back on. Uh, so it's very. I, I think it's difficult. It's bad. It's hard enough for teachers, and we, it's hard enough for us, I suppose, as students here in the last couple of classes, getting to grips with a lot of these pedagogical approaches. Uh, without, uh, I suppose, maybe trying to transcend one into the other. Uh, and I just think then, like, you know, we were able to dedicate and devote this type of time and these types of conversations to it. Uh, just how much does a teacher themselves in the classroom have time to do this? And when they start doing it, just how, what is the fidelity or what elements are missing? Uh, and I think you end up maybe, you, you lose, you, uh, I think on the ground, I just fear that you probably lose a lot before to gain maybe a little, you know? That's an interesting perspective. I think any other thought, I, I think that it, this can go either way. I think um, any other thoughts on this? I think that's a good perspective. Uh, it's interesting you would drop the word fidelity, Peter, and uh, mm -hmm. Peter wrote about fidelity of implementation. And I'm, I've got a graduate student who's looking at um, mm -hmm. what we... What does that mean? It, it, it's a research term. It means... Right. Is it when we report that we're doing sport education, what is it that we're doing? 
you know, yeah. what, what benchmarks, what, what pedagogies are we uh, are delivering? Um, and then for research, I think it's important. Do you, you know, if you can espouse that certain outcomes are coming up of a, as a result of a, the intervention of a model, you need to show that that model is, is the model. Um, so I guess that's that question. But I think, I think from a teacher's perspective, in reality, is, is hybridization a viable way forward? And I think you provided one example of, we need to be cautionary about perhaps some of that. Any other thoughts? Uh, so uh, my understanding, the, uh, the teacher will learn different model-based practice in their you know, professional uh, education process. And these uh, different model-based practice are like tools. Uh, the teachers, uh, I think teachers can use a tool, you know, more than one model-based practice together to maximize the educational benefits for their students. For example, uh, I, I'm just thinking uh, uh, the, the student leadership are, uh, are addressed in the sports education. And also uh, you can use you know, the TPSR model based practice, some principles in the TPSR model, you can use these principles to guide the practice to facilitate student leadership in sports education. And also uh, uh, when we, uh, and also uh, uh, we talk about the literacy development mm -hmm. in sports education. I think there's another way, uh, another practice uh, can facilitate that process. Uh, for example, like restorative practice the teachers can use restart uh, like restarting circle in their in their sports education class to develop students literacy you know uh, i think it's possible mm. just but as donna mentioned the fidelity is important you have to be sure you are doing the right thing yeah so can I push back on all of that for just a second? As, <laughs> as I, um, I, I agree. And from the seat I'm sitting in right now and from the seat of the academy, I think we can use words like fidelity and efficiency. And all of those things are important in academic writing. But I think about my teacher hat and um, my entire life was a hybridization. I took what I could, when I could, used it from who I could, borrowed from my PE teacher, borrowed from my art teacher. I saw what was working and wondered if it would work for me. So I, I want to push back on who's saying it's success and under what terms. Like, and again, I mean, I think I say that as an emerging scholar. Like, I understand that there are there are hats that are going to have to get worn around this, right? And that there are moments where absolutely we need to have an eye for did the model get used in the way it was supposed to be used and then how did it go? And so that's one question. But I, I don't want to pull away from the teacher who looks at this and says, wow, it never occurred to me that what I could do was build um, affiliations in my room and I'm going to hold those affiliations for an entire semester. And so that's a piece of this, right? And, and to let them see that and, and then how do I stick in all these other things? So there you go. I, I, 
I agree. I think it's important, but I also think we have to be um, willing to let teachers determine their own level of success um, with, with work that we've put out there in the world. Peter, did you have a comment on that? It is a contested space. I appreciate your commentaries, though, both from a teacher and a researcher. But you, you've got to start wearing two hats as you move through this process. Right. So these two hats can often, Just. when you're in teacher education and then when you're an academic, what, what's your priority? And I right. think those, there's an interesting space to, to deal with. And Just in this one issue. Peter, and a comment on yeah, okay, so prioritization? He, well, I'll go back to the fidelity issue for a second. Where it all came up um, was that people were saying they were doing this model, that model, whatever, mm -hmm. and they didn't give us any information about what actually went on. Right? And so we've pretty much come up with a three-item checklist you need to report, no matter what you do, it could be the most hybridized model in the world. It could be, you know, what happens when we put students in consistent teams for the whole year in math, right? And the big three, for us to make any sense of whatever you did, whether it's a researcher, whether it's a teacher, whoever, is, is the following three. And I'll read them from a paper that I just got uh, accepted yesterday. A right, so you'll have to send the SAP paper too, bro. <laughs> a yeah. rich description of the curricular elements of the unit, right? In other words, a, a table of the lesson progressions or what content they did. Okay, let, let's say it was, okay, middle school. I don't know if they solved simultaneous equations in middle school or later. All right, so that, that was the focus, All right? We got... Two, two X's and two Y's and what happens when we only have one X and then we have to turn X into Y, et cetera, right? Yep. B, um, a detailed description of the program context. Who were the kids? Who was the teacher? What was the teacher's experience with this particular model? Um, had they ever done sport education before? And so one of the things that we had was um, a lot of the early-ish work came from a particular university where all of the research done was with their pre-service teachers doing sport ed and they used that data. And it was like, whoa, hang on a second. I don't know that they're quite ready to do a really good job of it. Right. Um, and so within that part about program context is what was their experience? What was the student's experience? Had they ever done simultaneous equations before? Or was this something they did in seventh grade and when they're revisiting it? Um, so that was, that's part two. And then you need to validate that what you say you did actually happened. So we put them in teams. Um, we focused on simultaneous equations. And I remember in grade 11, we solved simultaneous equations with matrices, actually. Yes. And with inverse matrices. Ooh. But the point <laughs> is, what's the evidence that you actually did it? Right. And so what happens is you typically do that through having videos of lessons and a checklist to say, let's say we're doing persistent teams. How do we validate that we actually did what we say we were doing? Right. So it doesn't really matter what you're doing. 
Yeah, it could be, as I said, the most hybridized thing. So if you're doing a case study of this one teacher that wanted to put students in groups in math for an extended period of time, you need to include the curricular elements. What were they studying? Uh, what was the progression of tasks? How did you put them in teams? Then what was their experience with teamwork? Like if they'd been in groups before for like in social studies or something else, and it's not such a big shift to put it in math, or they'd never done any group work and all of a sudden, boom, they're in group in math. And the teacher's experience. And then, the, then an outcome that someone else could look and say, yeah, that's actually what they did do. Once you've got those three ABC check marks, then you're good to go. And that would make sense, for example, if you're just trying to train other teachers. Like, let's say you did a PD thing. And that first thing I'd ask, who's ever done group work in their classes? Nobody. Oh, okay, well, I'm going to have to tone it down a bit because it takes a while for group work to actually become effective. And you've got all those issues about who sponges off who and who takes over and all the interactions and that appear with group work. So the fidelity bit, the fidelity is those three the program context, the specific context, what you did, and the validation is that you actually did what you say you're doing. So without saying that's not important, it's critical. And it came from a whole bunch of early studies not addressing that topic very well at all. Whether it was cooperative learning, TPSR, TGFU, any other acronym you can come up with. And that, that um, has become sort of a, a big deal since about 2012. How do we know that you did what you're saying? And how can we then attribute to your outcomes to what you did? So there's nothing wrong with saying we did this and we found that, but we've got to know what this was. I can't just say we put the students in teams. Okay, well, give us, you know, and, and, it, it um, from an academic piece of work, it um, clogs up the method section, like kind of quite a bit, because it's normally at least a page and a bit of a paper that it's just provides all that necessary information. And, and then the other thing is that that's part of that part three is were all the resources that were necessary to pull this off available? You can't do sport education with three soccer balls and 25 kids. Well, right? You know, and it would be like, what do you, what do you need to have to be able to do um, an integrated unit in math, for example? You know, have worksheets because each table might be doing a different set of tasks, and, but particularly teacher content knowledge which is really pervasive in everything in physical education. And it's probably the one specialized content knowledge is probably one of the weakest ones that anybody has, which is different from a lot of the other subject areas, I think. Although we yeah, always we had a good lecture from Phil Ward on that. So the students are familiar with that. <laughs> All right, Thanks, move on. Okay, um, Ben, does, does class finish at uh, seven, uh, 
I'm well, on, we I'm we on. Uh, we drift on to uh, the latest would be seven thirty, but we okay. you know uh, we we're as long as we've got some interaction going and good engagement, we continue. Okay. Um, so if you've got question, other questions to stimulate the students, well, they, they, I'm sure they have questions as well, you know. Well, that's what I wanted to leave time for. I think yes. one of the, Ben facilitating, you know, people to come in and visit with doctoral students in this type of format is really cool from a doctoral student perspective. I think that's really getting insights into people like Peter. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't know much, but Peter knows a lot about this. So, um, but, but let's, I just want to jump to that one article, I guess. It, mm -hmm. um, it really goes to this enthusiasm piece. I guess I've centered some of my work over the last 10 years on this whole idea of student enthusiasm and really taking it from a lens of motivation. And, and there's been a number of people, I think, have got on board with that whole idea of using motivational frameworks in PE. Um, um, I know Ang Chen's group has done a lot of you know a lot of work with that um and so perhaps just talking about about that and so i, I did did prompt a few questions about that i will tell you that this study was a long one that you wouldn't do for your phd again because it was a two-year longitudinal intervention but i think it really highlights perhaps a contemporary question about physical literacy about the goal of physical education is particularly this health related discourse about physical activity and starting to think about are the models out there that motivate kids to engage beyond the realms of physical education and i think as i think sometimes um in sport pedagogy we're a little bit limited and we don't reach out beyond our gyms and what does that really look like for kids and so asking those tougher questions about its impact what do we do in the nature of physical education that has whether it's a health related or a critical theory or whether it's literacy what's the impact beyond the scope of our physical education curriculum and so let's just perhaps i don't know if you had any chance to look at that one um, what was the main purpose of that study? I'm talking about the Wallet Gannon, Gannon Vidoni one. Um, what did you get as a sense was the main primary purpose of that study? So, uh, in the, in the paper, it say the purpose of the study was to examine the, the uh, uh, effect of a high school sports education curriculum program on students' motivation for physical education and leisure time physical activity. So it's about sport uh, engagement in sports education and its impact on student outside school physical activity. Okay, good. Uh, that's a nice, easy starter for 10. Uh, look at the research design. What type of study is this? And uh, Now you, you're getting in your doctoral program. What are its design strengths in terms of addressing that proposed research question? What's good about it? No, no research studies ever perfect. Well, Peter's probably done some, but I haven't. Um, but so what are the strengths in relation to the research question? So uh, the research design is um, non-equivalent control group design. Is this one? It's, it's quantitative study. And 
it says the study utilized the non-equivalent control group design. And uh, the strengths of the, of the design, I think it's, uh, first is, it's, it's a, like a, a kind of quasi-experimental design. So, uh, because in school, it's very difficult to, to do a true experimental uh, study because the class, the students, the class to class are different. So they have different numbers of students. It's very difficult to do a random, random, you know, randomly uh, sampling. And so uh, this is, this design is very good for the school setting. And also uh, because this study is to, uh, uh, is about a cause and effect relation. So the experiment, the nature of experimental design can capture the impact of the sports education. So they have they have control group and experimental group. So you can, uh, you, you, you know, after statistics, you can see the significant or relations, correlations about the outcome, yeah. Yeah, and, and I've done qualitative work and quantitative work, quantitative work, not everybody buys into it's important. I'm going to do a quantitative design. How to structure that in terms of the outcomes that you aspire to? Okay, so good. Thanks, Eddie. Any other thoughts on strengths or weaknesses? Um, so there was, uh, I mean, it's, I'm, I'm just reading the paper here to the notes that I took, uh, Tristan. It was the first study to examine the implications of developing social goals after experiencing a program uh, of, of sport ed as well, too. Um, I suppose what, what it's, I mean, what this empirically is demonstrating, I suppose, is that uh, it produced an atmosphere that allowed students to uh, uh, to work and to be, uh, there was almost a kind of a, uh, an effective element of, uh, or an emotion, uh, an emotion, emotionally pleasing, uh, uh, these emotions were becoming, were developing in pupils so that they were allowed, that they were able to actually take this, I suppose, maybe beyond the gym, when they looked at other, uh, when looked at participating outside of physical education classes, um, so um, these kind of social connections become really important in that sense. Is that even regardless, I guess, of you know just the, uh, the the levels of skill development and stuff like that, but that this is also a key feature in terms of students' motivation as well too, in terms of how they're actually enjoying the content uh, that they're participating in as well too. Yeah, and I think thanks. That's that's exactly right. They they engaged, and it was a two-year intervention. It was the whole of their high school curriculum, PE curriculum, was taken up with this model at one site, and then we chose another school site to have a traditional curriculum. Um, and so I think that that is probably one of the strengths of the study. What were the what were the key findings though? I think which go back to the main research question. What were the key findings of the study? Some good ones and some further work. I think one of the ones I kind of touched on there, Tristan, was that like you know the the idea that they were uh, they were motivated to participate in extracurricular exercise after it as well too. Was that a key finding? Uh, one of the notes I took anyway, yeah. <laughs> I'm assuming it's the same paper anyway, yeah. I could be wrong though, sorry. You're missing, 
the two words called limited support. It was limited support for that actual direct transfer. Mm -hmm. one of, that's kind of like the holy grail, isn't it? Right. Um, yeah. One of the things that we're talking about, just um, I've been asked like over a year ago now to get with a couple of the super duper people in the field to create this white paper on where should research on physical education be going. And I, the first person I hit up was Judy Rink because she's the, mm -hmm. the goddess of the whole deal. And she just has one question. Does anything that happens in the name of physical education in schools change what students do once they, once they're outside of school? Um, and, you know, all of the research, like 99.99% of it is, does it make an influence in that unit? You know, does that unit work? But what happens, you know, are they, yeah, because shape America says it, everybody says we want them to be physically active for a lifetime. If that's mm -hmm. the goal, nobody's measuring it. Nobody is measuring that outcome except on a very few mm -hmm. um, pieces. I mean, the transcontextual one gets close. Tristan did it at lunch times. We did a, we've done a couple of little ones of out of school, but the contingency put in place for promoting that out of school was a reward system within the school. So for example, if they did out of school activity, they could get points for their team. So it's an external regulator. So do you want to talk a little bit about regulators, Tristan, and where we might go with yeah. that? That's tricky. I mean, it's the same with everybody. If you ask, this is the one thing about the literacy numeracy crowd. Um, do we really need, need, need to be able to solve simultaneous equations using vectors to be a matrix, sorry, to be mathematically literate? You know, to what point, and, and every kid that I went to school with in Australia, somewhere during our mathematics curriculum was, why do we need to know this? Yeah. Oh, you'll, you'll need it later on. Well, when? What do we need this for? Right. You know, it's this, this privileged subject area. Now, reading... I can, I can buy reading to, till the cows come home because it opens every other avenue. But, you know, why do we need to do 90% of the stuff that we learn in school? So I'll, I'll pass over that whole idea of, you know, physical education stands and, and every teacher, I want my children to enjoy it so they'll do it outside of school. But nobody you're the 1% you're the that measures what happens when they leave the gates. Hmm. Yeah, and, and I think it stems from my interest in, I'm pretty certain, I think we've got some strong empirical data that spot at increased kids' motivation engagement in PE. I think we've got some pretty rigorous data over the years. But, but I think the, the main outcome of that study, which I was kind of disappointed about, we do this for two years, uh, and I'm thinking, and I've done some during the, while that project was going on at one site, I was doing another project looking at a connection to lunch recess, giving kids a sports club to go to with their goal. Um, you know, like say we're doing team handball in, in PE and we offered them at lunch, would they come and play? 
and and we we see in that connection but in this particular study we didn't set set up an overt outlet for these kids to activate these skills whether it's competency enthusiasm and what we saw was that just doing a curricular intervention uh, does not overcome some of the barriers that occur in kids choosing to engage in physical activity. This, it's complex why kids do or don't do their leisure time physical activity. And it's not always in their control, particularly when they're younger. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this was with high schoolers, which have a little, little bit more autonomy in what they can and can't do or choose to do. Um, and we just didn't see that transfer. There was a small, it was approaching significance for the sport education group. And so it was a little concerning to me, uh, but we didn't know have an answer to that question before we did. That's why we do research. Obviously, I didn't know, know that going into it. But uh, um, I, and so I think that was um, I sent Ben that paper not because mm-hmm. I'm a positivist and, I'm, and I buy into you know quasi experimental designs being the answer to addressing all of our questions in physical education. But at least it was. Uh, a well, relatively well-designed experimental, quasi-experimental design that really showed that, yeah, it does increase kids. They want to participate in PE, but it doesn't impact what they do outside of that context. Um, and I think that's important. It stemmed future work that I've done with my graduate students about creating the environments and outlets to connect to that sport education experience but if we don't do that they won't take much from there or, or you have to do it for a long period of time uh, for them to be activists I think so I think that was kind of my I don't know any comments on my commentary related to that article yeah, I'm just going to pick up on that again Tristan because I was actually just reading off of your kind of closing statement actually where you were saying that it can, sport education actually has the potential to do this, but it wasn't seen in the study. And I'm just wondering, uh, how have you kind of how have you looked then at possibly trying to establish this? Uh, have you looked at it, or have, has anyone else looked in the intervening years? Yeah, um, Peter speak. Um, on, I think I'm on. Yeah, I, I'm on his doctoral one of his doctoral co- uh, student committees, and he's really looking at this whole idea of co- trans context. And anybody who buys into this whole idea of literacy, whether it's numer- you know, numer- reading literacy, it, you have to buy into the the empirical data to support the idea of literacy, which they transfer it out, they use it again. That's really what literacy is. Contingency based school, in college or in high school, they get extra points for their team. So, and I buy Peter's work with that. I'm not against that. I've done it more volitional. I want to know if kids choose to go without that external contingency. And And I think initially the contingencies are important, but then when they get to that environment, um, a study that my graduate student did. Uh, we did one with sport ed at lunch, uh, qualitative work, and we found that the girls, they didn't want to play it with the boys. This was in fifth or sixth grade. And so we've tried to now manipulate 
the extracurricular context, one, getting teachers to offer that outlet, and two, making it inviting, whether it's the activity of autonomy support you provide in that context, that they can, they can participate at a level that they want to. And so I think that's where future work needs to be. Uh, and I think it translates not just to fit from a physical activity standpoint, but I also from any learning standpoint, how are we allowing kids to have an outlet for those environments in PE uh, or whether it's in math even, mm -hmm. how, do we, how do we create those contexts for them to transfer that knowledge? Mm -hmm. So the la last few years, Peter and I and, and my own work has looked at really the extracurricular context, not sport education, but really how do we tie those two together? Well, we did one study that's not got um, beyond sort of like the data collection process, but with a group of kids in Illinois where we asked them, what would be three things that you'd like to learn in physical education that you would then become more competent in and, and have a higher level of, you know, like self-efficacy that you would do outside of school, mm -hmm. right? Um, first choice was hunting because they're like rural Illinois kids and we go, well, we can't really do shooting and stuff in PA. So that went. Um, weight training and then fishing. And the school had fishing ponds. So we did a unit on fishing, right? And we did casting and um, they, they had worm beds that they made. They had assignments about where could they go fish outside of school? Um, they were able to take pictures of them fishing with other folks, grandpas, dads, uncles, cousins, um, and Instagram them in. And then we looked at the, their motivational profiles, their interest in fishing and their perceived competence and knowledge. And we did it in the spring and then one of the questions was, how often did you fish last summer? And then we did it afterwards. And then the numbers of kids that actually fished multiple times in the summer was way higher. Um, so that might be a beginning. I think we've got some um, quantitative data, but I think we probably have the paper's going to have legs. Oh. We might need to turn it more into a bit more of a quality descriptive type piece because I think some of the predictors that came from Tristan's models didn't quite show up there. Is that fair to say? Yes, you thank you. Thank you for the reminder on that data set, <laughs> Peter, that I need to write up. Thank you. Yes, correct. Yeah. Thank you. But, but <laughs> the, point, the, point was, the starting point for this was getting the, the youngsters to choose what they would like to learn in PE specifically so it would engender their potential to do it outside of school. Now, there's one that I would really like to do. There was a brilliant piece in Joker quite a while ago about mountain biking. And the kids learned in their PE about not just how to ride, but how to ride over, you know, different terrains, how to fix the tyres, how to put the chains back mm -hmm. on. But they had these assignments about um, one of their homework assignments was where is a safe space for you and your neighborhood to ride, right? Another assignment was who's going to take you and your bike to a park so you can do off-road 
biking. They were looking at all the environmental barriers. Basically, the study was based on the literature that we know of barriers to participation, right? Having someone to do it with, having the skill to do it, having the time, having the access. And for kids, it's 90%. It's going to be not when I was a youngster, it, this was irrelevant, but getting to the place, we used to just go. I mean, mm -hmm. my mum back in the, 30s she'd walk five miles to music lessons through the bush you know it wasn't even considered to be problematic but you know like for example the different context now but so that that was just a proposed piece it was like a little thing in jopit about here would be a way that maybe would you could try to encourage kids to be bikers mm -hmm. right and and help them find out Basically, it looked at the five key, the five big hurdles of why they don't do it. You know, do you have a place to go? Do you have someone to do it with? Can you, can you ride? Do you have the skills? And trying to break down those barriers. Now, that would be, you wouldn't have to do that during sport education, but it could be done in that particular way. And, and the Frisbee one that we did where the kid, what they did was they chose, okay, so the fishing group chose theirs. The next group at, a, at another school similar in district, we said, what would be a sport that we could teach you that you would go and then play outside of school? And they all chose Frisbee, right? And so they learned how to do disc golf. Um, they created their own courses. They had to go and find places and spaces that they could play outside. And then to determine whether they did it, if they Instagrammed them, playing with their classmates, others, whatever, then they got a, you know, like a reward for their team. And we measured their out of class physical activity. And it was about 8,000, it averaged seven to 8,000 steps per day outside of school during the season, um, except for one day when it was 1500 class average, but that was the day that it, they had a blizzard. <laughs> so no, no going outside in the snow. But that was an interesting, again, it's taking up on this, giving students choice of content, giving students choice of how, what are the possibilities for them being active outside of school. And the school part of it is developing the competencies and then helping them navigate some of those other barriers. Mm -hmm. So that's a, an interesting start, at least. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I guess it just, it, it's just, I mean, you get the different speakers in here. Um, it's something that I was interested, I've been interested in for the last sort of 15 years. And I think as you work forward from your doctoral studies and you develop a line of inquiry, I think picking something that I think is, you know, is contemporary. And it, I, to me, it's important. If kids don't take anything from PE that, and use that, that to me is a challenge to making a case for the viability of our subject area. And so I've just taken it from a sort of health discourse lens, but you could take it from any, you could take it from a social critical, you could take it from social emotional context. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's where Peter and I have, I think have collaborated most recently in the last five or six years on that type of trans contextual transfer idea. Um, and that was really the outcome of that um, 
it, I'm going to finish with one question because I want to give you folks time to, to ask a question. But if you were to build on that study, what would you do next? This is why I always ask my graduate students. What would you do next? What would be the next study? Did anybody have any thoughts on that? The one with Carlos students? That study? With yeah. 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 Does anybody got, have any ideas? Are you, I've got my answer, but I'll wait. Yeah, this, these doctoral students, they don't, get to, they don't get to pass unless they get to come up with the next study that's better than that. With unlimited resources, unlimited time, which I know doctoral students don't have, but any ideas? Well, I have a couple. Um, okay. you, you could, you, there are a couple. You could drop it down. Um, I'm a middle school person, so I always want to see stuff done with middle school. So that's grades five through eight. Um, I'd l I would love for you to be able to, to drop that down and start it with um, fifth or sixth. It, it Mostly locally here in Greensboro, it's sixth grade. Mm -hmm. And Judy and I talk about this all the time. There's this huge dip in um, kids who love physical education in the elementary or primary grades and then they hit middle school and they're not interested. Um, and there are all kinds of reasons for that, but perhaps sport, the sport ed model could be something that does in fact um, increase their enthusiasm through the, through, you know, the autonomous uh, motivation model, which I loved. Thank you for that. Um, so that would be one, like I would drop it down to eighth grade and follow them through eight, nine, 10 again. Um, because I think log longitudinally does some really neat things. So that would be one. Um, I would love to go back into the two years of your data, find the anomalies. We can't do this now, right? But go back in, find the anomaly um, or the outlier uh, scores and interview those kids. Um, for that we're both outliers at the high end and outliers at the bottom because both of them have stories to tell. Um, and from both buildings, not just the experimental group, but the control group as well. Like what's making PE so awesome for you and who are you and why is that happening um, through their own voice instead of through the voice of an instrument. So there, there's two. Uh -huh. Not to mention the, Love the second one. Love oh. the second one. Yeah. <laughs> That's where statistics gets fun. Statistics is fun because it's all about the outliers. It's all about those, the ones that, that muck it all up. Mm -hmm. um, or at Your least. lunchtime one, Tristan, what grade levels was that? The um, well, it was, so it was done in an American school. So it was in, they finished their required P at, at the end of 10th grade. So it was from 9th, through 10th grade was the curriculum. Yeah, but the one in Wyoming. So in Ireland, that would be? Uh, that would be 17, 18, wouldn't it? Yeah. Or like, sorry, uh, 16, 16, 16. A little, 16. little younger. Yeah. 16, yeah. 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 Year, year 11 for yeah. you for you in Ireland, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so a lot, I love that. We've done, it's funny you should say that, Jennifer, about that one, taking the, taking the outliers and interviewing, and we're doing it on a different study. Yeah. Looking at uh, there's a, an adult fitness program actually called November Project, and it, if you want to Google that, it's really yeah. it's an interesting group-based fitness. It's non-profit, and we've done a large sample survey, and then we're in the process with one of my undergrad students of interviewing the outliers. So if you did transfer mm. out of this 
particular exercise. Hit, it's, it's about hit training. Um, mm-hmm. yeah. but, but that's that's a cool. I love your answer. Great answer. Uh, any other thoughts? Okay. Peter, what did you have? Because you've got the next best thing. You've always telling me the next best thing I've got uh-huh. to do. Now, I was asking the one that you did with Mr. Reedy. Was that in middle school? Oh, that was in upper elementary, the qualitative yeah. one. Right. So that's an answer to Jennifer. They have kind of done it. But no, the, the yeah. touch flag rugby one, the touch rugby one. Yeah, that was in upper elementary. Yeah. <clears throat> it was... Fifth graders, I think. Sixth graders. Sixth graders. Yeah. Yeah. The, so the, the other piece that I would do... from oh. that outlier type thing too. It's basically um, what are eighth, ninth and tenth graders doing after school? Just a purely, just, you know, like number crunch. We don't, we don't really know. Nobody's sort of got a big database. So I'll throw this one at you. This is something I've thought about ages um it could be a study that we could probably do about 10,000 15,000 students if you had enough sites you just mass produce you just go to a high school and grab everybody it's it's two questions well first it's the first question is have you done any purposeful physical activity today yes or no right have you done anything that you deliberately chose to be active yes because i was had pe class yes i um trained for sport yes i went to the gym or no i didn't that's the first question question two is what's your response to the answer which could be um yes i did it and i felt really good about it you know it was fun i enjoyed it yes i did it because i had to like i had to take pe i wouldn't have done it if I didn't have to, or I did it because, you know, I need to, you know, I've got some sort of reason. It wasn't sort of how volitional was it? That's the yeses. Then the no's would be, no, I haven't done it and I could care less. I have no interest or no. And it's kind of made me a little bit antsy. You know, like I haven't had a chance to be active today, but this afternoon I'm going to do X. So you could, like I said, that would take however long it took me then, two minutes to survey every single kid. It's the first answer. Have you done anything? Yes. And what's your response? It could be probably one of these four, which of these four matches? You know, no, and I don't care. No, and I wish I had been able to, but I just haven't had a chance. Yes, I did, but I did it because I had to, or someone made me, or because there was some sort of external regulation. I did it because of, you know, like more external motivation or I did it because I really wanted to. All right. Third question is how much of your school physical ex- education experiences has had an impact on that answer? None. You know, I, it, school P has made no difference to that or, you know, like on a sliding scale of, you know, those little things where you put them on, um, you can get the scales when you do Qualtrics, you know, from, almost everything to absolutely nothing, you know, put a, put a mark on this line about how much your school PE experience influenced that answer. And as I said, you could survey and, you know, boy, girl, whatever, where do you live? You know, do a few demographics, 10 minutes, 
sample of 10,000 and you'd get a really good interesting case of, you know, where American young people are in terms of their volitional out-of-school physical activity. All it needs is like 10 people, you know, 10 universities to go and commit to doing it like at 10 high schools. Like I said, just go in there, get a class and go boom. Mm -hmm. And you know, and, and the IRB is it's anonymous. Um, mm -hmm. Students don't put their names, you do it verbally and just give them a bit of paper. And it's like, mm -hmm. yes, no, yes, yes, mm -hmm. or yes, no, or it does. And then you score. Thank you very much. Um, off we go. And then you pay some poor people to enter all that data. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Peter, that's a great study. In fact, in New Zealand, uh, the uh, Adolescent Health Research Group had, uh, has done a similar sort of undertaking. Simple questions with... Uh, 30,000 students over three different time periods. So each time period around about 10,000 high school students. So I must go back and look at that to see what the Kiwi kids said. Um, at this point, how about uh, questions from uh, the uh, students here? Because I know they, they'll have different kinds of questions. Uh, if that's okay, Tristan and uh, Peter. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so I'm actually just going to like follow up maybe in response to that as well too. If I was following on from that that project, I'd probably start with reading the paper a bit more closely, Christian. But uh, uh, I'm just wondering from a qualitative, <laughs> from a qualitative angle, from a qualitative, yeah, from a qualitative angle, um, is with an action research approach, you wouldn't be able to. I mean, Peter's obviously given the the other example of being able to survey a large amount of students and populations. If we know these outliers exist and this is a problem what kind of space is there for action research with this kind of, with a sport ed approach or has it been done much, I wonder? Peter, I'll let you take that one. I know you've done more of the action-based research piece. Could you give it to me again, sorry? Sorry, Peter, I'm just wondering, so we're just, I'm just wondering like where would action, re like what kind of, has action research uh, been used as a kind of an approach to maybe identify these, uh, as we said, like addressing these kind of outliers or these problems we're identifying with pedagogical models like sported where they can't actually take it beyond physical education classes or it's not uh, manifesting in their actual lives outside of the schools. I don't know of a single project on sport education that's used action research, to be honest. Right. Okay. Yeah, I'm no, not, I, I'm just, I'm just, yeah, I'm not sure that action research. I think um, I, I, I did a study with. I think it's probably be more case. I apologize if I'm breaking up. Um, I know that most people don't have the skills to do action research very well at all. Um, despite it's um, the way that it's profoundly um, recommended for you know, upper level students and whatever, you know, at university levels, they just don't have the skills to be able to pull it off unless you've had lots of experience in identifying what data is, what good data is. Actually, there's a, a book that just came out written by Anne McPhail and Hal Lawson mm -hmm. about the 21st century reconfiguring everything. And the chapter that I did in there was evidence-based practice 
in teacher ed and in um, and in teaching. And it goes through that before you ask anybody to do anything like action research, you have to scaffold so many preliminary skills for it to be even meaningful. Mm-hmm. That's, that's on a complete, that was a really hard chapter to write. It was a really weird book. But that, that would be my take on it. Mm-hmm. But, but in terms of has anybody done anything? Mm-hmm. No. Um, Claudio's would be the closest, the one that I did, the Sport in Society one. His was how can we, you know, in effect, how can we make these students understand issues of equity and fairness and um, helping behaviours and all of those affective types of things? Not so that we found it in action research. Because action research starts right. with a problem and then you, you study solutions to, mm. to try to solve the problems or at least learn about them. Yeah, I know. Was, it, was there a previous class? Yeah. Uh, someone previously mentioned, I know, that uh, they, they introduced sport ed, but um, was it like, a, like an Olympic festival, but they had the budgets... Um, they had the budgets of the countries that they were representing, I think, as well, too. Mm-hmm. And just these kind of way of just getting students to critically respond, I guess, to uh, situations that are kind of there's the, the, the larger picture or the kind of more the larger social issues that manifest themselves within sport as well, too. And that just kind of came into my head while I was thinking about it. And I know that's not action and research, but it's just, you know, a way of trying to engage students maybe within sport to look at things or try to look at things a bit more critically, but also for researchers as well, too. But I don't have the... I don't have the solutions myself or answers to that either. I'm just wondering how what you guys thought about it. Yeah, it's interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think uh, I, my, my experience is there's a lot of uh, work that's been published on action research that isn't really true action research. Uh, and I think Peter's comment about scaffolding with any one of the pedagogical models, whether it's sport ed or TPSR or cooperative learning, it's a lot of hard work and someone needs to gain a very deep uh, understanding and knowledge and experience of this innovative creative pedagogy. And so I guess my question was related to that. And so is this too hard? Are we expecting too much from teachers to uptake uh, or take this on um, or buy into it? And, uh, you know, we don't have a lot of really good examples of longitudinal work and anyone with any of the uh, pedagogical models that we've studied. So your thoughts, Peter and Tristan and the group here. Um, can I respond to that? Can you all hear me? I've taken my video off. I'm struggling with some bandwidth issues here. Can everybody hear me still? Yes, we can hear Tristan. Well, did a moose run through your backyard and take out your, take out your power line? Or <laughs> it was an elk. No, no, it just started no. snowing in Wyoming, yeah. Now, one of the things just... that Stephen Top said in his very first book, and we've taken it through, although it's been diminished a little bit, is start simple, start small. Yep. And, and choose a sport that you know well, you know, mm-hmm. so that you can make modified tasks and help. Yep. Um, don't add all the bells and whistles, first go. Mm-hmm. Um, we kind of call that sport ed light. Mm-hmm. Wanted a category for it. Um, yeah, the essential model, you know, teams, mm-hmm. competition, roles, uh, development in appropriate competition is a good way to go. 
And then as you become more comfortable and comfortable, you can build on it. I mean, these guys that are doing the, I mean, one guy, for example, did, did his whole culminating event in the dark with like, you know, cosmic bowling, you know, he had all of these flashing <laughs> lights and lasers and the whole thing was just like completely over the top from pyrotechnics and not, not pyrotechnics, but yeah. And it's got to the point where he, these teachers are saying, unless we jazz it up to the nth, kids are so used to being, having like not only all the bells and whistles, but every possible contraption that if they just did a normal season, be like, oh, okay, that's a bit, bit boring. Because they yeah, they've gone so far over the top. But yeah, so in terms of you know helping people start mm-hmm. basic, then we've just interesting enough, I've just been asked by a guy in Spain, they surveyed well they sent the survey to every PE teacher in the in the state of Castilla Mancha because there's four universities there and all of the PE people in all of those universities are trained to do sport education and TGFU too. So they wanted to know who's doing it and what elements of, of it are they doing it and for how long because in our research we've only studied like the full versions you know lengthy seasons like a lot of the studies that have been rejected not ours but mm-hmm. earlier on well, well you didn't really do sport ed properly because you didn't do it for more than 10 lessons so we can't mm-hmm. take any notice of your of your data um but we wanted to know what's normal i won't say jack and jill it would be you know jose and maria what are, what are they doing in the name of sport education it seems mm-hmm. to be they're doing about a 10 lesson unit where you know, they're doing sort of light, light versions of mm-hmm. it. And what we need to do now is to study those outcomes. Mm-hmm. Are they developing competence? Mm-hmm. Are they developing literacy? Because to go with Jennifer's big issue here is of teacher autonomy in the curriculum, right? I don't have the opportunity to do mm-hmm. the full deal, but we need to, under, we need to find out are these versions of sport ed producing mm-hmm. of the model and not holding the teachers to say, you know, it's not working, you can't do it, but what do you get, right? You've, you've gone to, to Walmart with $15. What can you buy? Well, you can buy a lot less. You know, you can't get the sirloin steak or the expensive fish if someone else goes in with $50. So what do you get? if you do a 10 lesson unit with teams and this and this, do you get anything close to what the model, well, what the goals of the model are? Mm-hmm. But nobody's done. And, and this was basically just a um, cataloging, I guess, of what's going on in the name of sport education, so to speak. And so now from that starting point, it's then worthwhile to go and look at what happens in these contexts. Because the first studies did it properly, gold standard, for mm-hmm. example, because if we, if, if we can't get competence, literacy and enthusiasm with a gold standard, we're sure as heck not going to be able to get it with a watered down or a lighter version of it, mm-hmm. right? And people would say, oh, but you were the researcher, you were the teacher. Yeah, okay, because I know the model inside out. If I can't do it, then... Heck, 
you know, a regular PE teacher is not going to be able to do it. So that was the justification for putting in like the best possible iteration of it. It'd be, it'd be like teaching a, a new type of math with teachers who weren't trained to teach a new type of math. Mm -hmm. Right. What do you learn from that? Was it the teacher didn't know it or was it because of the curriculum model? You can't say, but now we're, now we're ready to look at what are the outcomes of those um, shrunk versions, you know, the lighter mm -hmm. versions. Mm -hmm. Same with cooperative learning. How mm -hmm. many of the six, or is it five, key features, the, how many of the big five do you need to be able to, A, call it cooperative learning, obviously you'd want all of them, but what happens if you just do three? What do they mm -hmm. learn? What happens if you just do two? Is there a threshold where you've got these, you know, as long as you have this, this, and this, then you can pull something off. If you don't have those mm -hmm. magic markers, are the fourth and fifth ones value added, for example? Or are they all necessary to get outcomes? Desirable, yes, all five. But what happens if you have to compromise on something? What happens then? I don't know that I have, I don't know that literature anywhere nearly as well as you do. Yeah. Well, yeah, and Peter, I think that's a good question. And there are I rely on five key elements, but there are other studies that have re reported in the general education of three key elements, but also other indicators that there was, you know, fidelity or it was validated in some way. Um, but uh, I, th I think uh, you're quite right that it is very difficult in anyone, with any one of the pedagogical models or with any pedagogy any innovation uh, and maybe we can learn something from the hybrid models because some of them have taken parts of or pieces of uh, models and, and, and mixed them. Uh, that might be a, a way in to try to understand some of that. But I agree, it would be interesting to study. Um, it would be good if uh, journal editors were open to accepting papers that weren't necessarily the copy book or, you know, the rule governed model. Um, well, if it's grounded in enough, like what you have to do to counter that, yeah, is you have to have a big sample size. Yeah, you'd have to have yeah. the the outcome measure from like ten seasons of mm -hmm. sport ed light, mm -hmm. for example. Mm -hmm. You couldn't just do it on one because right. you don't know whether it's that school, those kids' experience mm -hmm. with it, the mm -hmm. teachers' content knowledge. Right. But if you, if you had replicates of, mm -hmm. you know, 10, we had 10 teachers that did sort of skeleton sport ed, so to speak, mm -hmm. for two weeks or 10 lessons, this is where we got to. Right? That, that, would, that would pass muster. Yeah, so I if, think it would. Yeah, you know, that's good. I would wave to him, but I can't. I've got my, my the ninjas are my screen. Otherwise, I would wave Okay. No worries, mate. Uh, look, uh, we, we're going to cut it off in about uh, 12 minutes by 7.20. So questions from uh, the students, because, you know, it's this seminar's for you, and uh, I know you've all contributed, but if you have uh, questions that you could ask, two of the experts in the world on sport ed, uh, Peter Hasty and uh, Tristan Molehead. Hey, uh, I have a question. Uh... I know uh, that uh, American students, they participate in the uh, school club outside the school. 
where many students part participate in outside school sports club. Mm -hmm. And I think they, expe they experience different expectations uh, in the uh, outside school sports club. Uh, some expectations are not in line with sports education because in sports education, they, uh, it said it's no, no elimination format and all players have equal, equal chance to play. And uh, uh, the sports education uh, emphasize on the uh, equality and inclusive, but actually in the in, in outside school sports club, they, may on, they might be only focused on the highly competitive need. Competitive need, oh, sorry. Competitive no need, competitive, yeah, competition. Highly competitive needs, and also uh, they focus on uh, the in, intrusive things. So uh, when the students that participate in the outside school outside school sports club, they might bring these you know uh, different uh, different values in the in the school. Uh, when they participate in the sports education, they might feel contradict. You know they have the different expectations might. Uh, con my contra contradictory. If you read so, yeah, for, real quickly, so, yeah. sorry. If you if Tristan's paper, the one that we sent you or the reference to it, mm -hmm. he had a really interesting set of interactions between him and the kids who were the coaches and the students who were the coaches and their classmates, because those the three youngsters that were coaches for the whole year came from that sort of high intensity coaches, boss, do what you're told sports background in Portugal, two in soccer and one in basketball. And so they transferred those mannerisms and, and coaching styles from their sports club people into their teams. And it took, a, it took, you know, a couple of seasons for them to realize that, that wasn't going to motivate the other kids on their team to be told that, you know, like do it this way. And that, that dynamic took a, a long time to change. It was interesting. So it was them bringing behaviors from club setting back into PE versus the other way around. We've completely, I won't say failed because we don't have enough big, big enough sample of people who are researching to take this particular model of way about going sport into rec leagues, boys and girls clubs, those sorts of things. We did one at a, um, where it's been really successful is um, Zach Wall, Alexander has done a lot of it in his summer camps in New York, right? With like super really rich youngsters. Um, where they've done that. We did one, I didn't, but one of our PhD students is now a faculty member. He took it to a camp in Arizona where all of the kids had visual impairments. Basically, they were all blind. Right? And they said, oh, we've never been on a team before ever because yeah. everybody on the team was blind. And, but they did all the jobs. They, they officiated because they had all of their counselors with them that, could, that yeah. were visual. And they refereed and they kept points and they had fair play tokens and all sorts of interesting things. But, but the sport ed context 
in places outside of physical education is an absolute gold mine waiting to happen. But then again, you've got the whole social issue of, particularly in the United States, where you know you play club sport to be good so you can get good enough to get a scholarship to go to college and travel teams and you know that whole very pernicious thing that serves to and and it's real exclusionary i mean ben would know this um one of the schools i did my phd study in australia had 40 four zero rugby teams mm-hmm. in a high school everybody yep. that wanted to play was on it like you'd be on the under 15 f's mm-hmm. under 15 a b c d e f and they went down to g you know now mrs brown the home ec teacher that was basically bring the oranges and Watched the jerseys with the coach for the 15Fs, but they just ran mm-hmm. their own. They ran themselves, but mm-hmm. they played against another team's Fs on Saturdays anyway, so they didn't care. They just wanted to play. Right. Um, yeah, American sports doesn't work like that mm-hmm. at all. Um, Commonwealth countries, it's much more, you know, available. Sports yeah. very exclusive in this country, very elite and very um, eliminatory. I mean, you know, like all of these right. kids that leave high school. You know, where do they play? Nobody does. Even after middle school, they don't. Mm-hmm. Unless you're going to be like good. It's pretty sad. And that's why it's important that sport mm-hmm. education, because as Daryl said way back in 94, this might be the only time that a lot of these youngsters are actually ever on a team and play in a competition mm-hmm. with a count. So yeah. a good experience within PE because they're certainly not going to get it anywhere else. Yeah, that's a very good point, Peter. Uh, uh, we got uh, five more minutes. Other questions or concerns or comments from our group? Um, I'd like to use uh, Peter's comments just now as a segue into uh, the idea of uh, looking at schools with different socioeconomic status to see impacts. You know, so we do see with, with the one study, I'm looking at the date, 2014, how the two schools, um, I it right this very second, but this seemed to be on the uh, upper end of, 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 of this. And to be able to, I, I feel like I saw a higher socioeconomic status, but I can't find it, so I don't want to say that for sure. But I thought it'd be really interesting if there were like a high, medium, a low, you know, I don't know. So, um, are there any studies or have you all done any studies where you look at different socioeconomic statuses or mm-hmm. uh, with of students? <clears throat> yeah, that's, that's a really good point. Um, I'll just lend you to, we surveyed a year and a half ago, every academic that done research on sport education and ask them, where do we need to go with research? And one of the most prominent scholars, um, not myself or Peter, we were doing the study and hopefully we'll get that out this next year. And one of the foci, that one of the main primary scholars in our field across the world um, said was, does this work in difficult contexts? And so I think it goes to that idea of how does this type of model manifest in, you know, you could define a difficult context in terms of sort of the American lens is this SES. Um, It has some different, you know, connotations, but I think that's a really good point. Uh, Those two schools that I use in that study were convenient. I had 
they were probably middle upper class, probably not not upper class. I know Zach Walder's stuff in his upper class mm-hmm. camps and stuff, which is a little limited. But I think this, I think Kathy Ennis um, did a study in two thousand and three, and she called it "Canaries in the Coal Mine," mm-hmm. and she looked at kids of lower SES with with spot education and she called it canaries in the coal mine and they're, they're not all mm-hmm. singing. So mm-hmm. then in the, in those contexts, which is a really good question, Judy, how does the model manifest mm-hmm. what needs to be done with it? And I know Peter's done some more pro social pieces with that within those contexts, but, but you're right. I think in diff- in more challenging contexts is the model, still going to work and perhaps we don't have enough data on that judy i think that's a really good question and, and just one more thing and then my voice i think i'm 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 finished for the evening uh, i apologize you know, i was uh, thinking actually jennifer and i are, are working on a, a study with the school system that's close by and we are uh, one of the interesting pieces that which is very simple out of the demographics of, of our study is to see um, who is doing what based on whether they come from a lateral entry versus a regular educator preparatory program, uh, years of experience. So one of the comments earlier, I didn't get a chance to chime in, but when we think about like the whole idea of sport ed light, you know, is that because of, you know, the background that I had, who I studied with, with my undergraduate work, if I even had an opportunity to study with someone with my undergraduate work in physical education, I just think there's so many different variables with demographics that can really paint a picture of who is having um, the, a, the chance to develop, to develop a curriculum that, that can be a part of it. Um, and I'm not sure from the research standpoint, when you are thinking about, you know, who you're going to go study or the programs you're going to study, I mean, have you all tied in the whole demographic piece of the teacher's experiences? I would think, you know, assuming that a 20-year veteran may feel a little bit more comfortable and confident in their pedagogical skills to implement a practice. But if I'm a, a BT, beginning teacher, zero to three, I'm just trying to figure out what's going on and make it to, to the end of the school year. And heaven forbid those beginning teachers this school year, right? I mean, this is, this is quite the school year. So uh, what is your take on, on evaluating that and making some, drawing some correlations with the fidelity of sport ed to the teacher experience? Okay, I'll, I'm going to take that one again because my master's student right now has done a question that addresses that to some extent. I've been at Wyoming for 15 years, and so we surveyed all of our previous graduate students on their use of sport education. What features do they use? What don't, if they do, don't use it, why don't they use it? And then we looked at it through the lens of occupational socialization, which I'm not sure if you're familiar with that theoretical framework. And so we just he's just fine just finalizing his written paper of this. What was interesting was um, I think the years of experience matter and full users, and I, we got some categorizations, full users um, were rarely in the years one to five. And so it goes to I think Peter's previous point that I think teachers particularly and 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 matt kerner smith did one on first year teachers i'm not sure that was the best you know and he categorized and they did very much light versions i think that sustains for a while what we did see is people who've been you who choose to use the model over a period of time 
grow in their use of the model. They don't particularly continue to do the, uh, what, what Peter called the light version. Um, what was really interesting, I think, well, one of the more, more interesting aspects of that, and you talk about demographics of teacher education, we looked at it from a pre prediction model. And if I don't know if you're familiar with organ, um, occupational socialization, but there's an acculturation phase prior to going into teacher education, then there's professional socialization, which is during your teacher education program, and then organizational socialization is afterwards. And we looked at which of these three factors predicted their use of the model, and the, the only one that was even close was, what do you think? What do you think predicts their use of the model out of those three facets? I'm going to go with the teacher education, the middle, the middle part. Correct. Correct. None of the others. We, 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 we taught that context drives, you know, they go into a difficult context, but that's true. The non-users, there was some very, very significant barriers. They don't use the model at all for a couple of really, usually students behavioral issues, but the modified users, the light users and the full users, it's what they get in their teacher preparation programs. It isn't their acculturation um, that it predicted it at all. It was really their, their professional socialization. And really they talked about early field experiences. And so for you folks who are going into teacher education, if you want teachers to use these models in practice, you have to build their, their comfort and experience levels and you can't just expose them to a model. Yeah. And so our program over the last 15 years, we've had built-in progressions where we supervise them delivering the model out in the schools, and particularly in middle and high schools. And so that is the biggest predictor of whether they choose to use the model at all. And, and then the years of experience factors into that in terms of which goes to your question, Judy. And so I think hopefully I can get this data out this next year about, because we just, as Peter says, we just don't know. We're getting a better idea of whether teachers use these models. Cooperative learning, I'm fascinated to see whether people take from professional development and use the model. But then to what extent, and then what factors are influencing those choices? And then Peter made the comment. And then, so if they use the light version, if most of these people use it, actually most of our respondents said they use the modified version we use, which is kind of, they are, we categorized it. They, they don't tend to do a culminating event, if any of you are familiar with it, the specific features, and they water down the responsibility aspect, but they do the other features. So I think what's important from we learned from that study, is, goes to your question, Judy, is professional socialization is uh, really important. Uh, we, we've talked to, you know, talk about washout and, and those kind of pieces as well. Actually, uh, if you prepare them well enough in their preparation programs, they will do it in practice. They will choose to do it. And I think that's really important for us in, in, in Pete. So I, that's a good question, Judy. Does that answer your question a little bit? Yeah, it does. So in my current position, I am responsible for um, a lot of the Pete classes and supervising student teachers and, what's really interesting to, to 
you know, as you were talking, thinking about the whole hybridization piece. And if I have my own version of what I consider a hybridization of sport education, what, you know, to be able to take that idea and break it down and then to see where those pieces come from and where do I gain confidence from. So I think as a beginning teacher, we go to PDs and we take in as much as we can. We go to conferences. We try to take in as much as we can. What well, I always joke with my students, beg, borrow, and steal. You know, you, you know, we shouldn't you know, we should really think about how to make everything better, uh, not having to recreate the wheel, but how can you take a little bit of this, a little bit of that, a little bit of this. So it'd be really, you know, curious, especially with uh, things like the open curriculum now, you know, how many resources we have, and especially now with the, the whole coronavirus and teachers having to go online, you know, they're having to stretch, they're having to stretch their comfort levels and how they're trying to deliver content, you know, but I do wonder going back, you know, if we're looking at these models and, you know, like I said, I, I think I took a lot of the basis of cooperative learning and threaded it through. Uh, I don't think I really thought of it as I'm teaching this model space here or there or there. I think it just, it what made sense for me as a teacher at the time. Me as a fifth year teacher versus the 10th through the 15th year teacher, it changes. Uh, but I think that's a really interesting concept. Thank you for explaining that. It's it definitely the occupational socialization theory is something mm -hmm. that I am touching into with my research mm -hmm. uh, with, with who, uh, my clientele with, with teacher prep. So I appreciate the feedback. Thank you. Thanks. Uh, good question, Judy. And uh, Peter, do you want to f uh, finish with anything? Uh, I think this will be the last comment. Well, uh, yeah, we've, we've, we've got some pretty good results. Yeah, anecdotally, mm -hmm. with sport education in what you call difficult schools, how, how you define that. Um, so for example, there's a couple of schools in Harlem that are very multicultural, um, high dropout rates, you know, all of those things. And they've, they've done it and the kids have really responded really well. And then just up the road here, there's a school, um, dirt poor Alabama, 99% black, uh, roll out the ball, um, coachy types. And we had um, a PhD student and a master's student, but both African-American go into that school and completely change the culture of those kids around. So they had great seasons. Now, if I tried to do it, I don't think I would have had a chance. And their whole business is connectivity with the kids first. You know, the whole um, being seen as a legitimate teacher and, and, um, Lakia's from New York, uh, sorry, from Chicago. So she's taught in a inner city version of a poor rural black school. And, um, you know, what, what, the, what we find, I guess if you're going to analyse it a little bit, um, just from what I saw, is that a lot of youngsters are looking for structure and order and sport ed provides that predictability of events you know you come in you go to your team area someone does the warm-up and you have some practice and but there's autonomy within that like how you do your warm-up and you're playing they're playing three on three and who's the three for this team so there's inbuilt sort of um the the motivation the self-determination folks talk about controlling versus structure and how they're not the same thing. You can be an autonomy supportive teacher and in a, in a have a lot of 
structure. So youngsters know their boundaries and what's expected of them and those sorts of things. And this, these two teachers were very good at, mix, at putting those two things together. So sport education provides some predictability, right? You know that at, after the warm-up, we're going to play games. It's not like, do we get to play today? Question mark. You know, like not having any idea about what's happening. And you know that the Devils are playing the Eagles. You know, and we've done it in another school in Columbus so way back when. Um, and the teachers were saying that just the chatter amongst these eighth grade boys changed from like, oh, yeah, we're playing the Marcus's team today. We've got to mark him because he's this rather than who was going to fight who on the school bus on the way home. You know, the discourse of the kids completely flipped from one of adversarial relationships to one of, you know, within our team. And there was a girls team in that class that actually made the finals. That was, uh, that was really cool. But yeah, it, we've seen good, um, you know, well, positive outcomes in those, if you want to use SES as the, um, the measure that you would put them up. And, I, and I'm guessing that it probably provides, as I said, some um, predictability to events rather than just things being scattered and random. And, and it takes someone that's pretty good to pull it off, you know, that, that connect with the, the students and have some street cred and not go in there sort of demanding compliance immediately versus demanding respect and that's what they found when the Ennis did the sport for peace type project too they set up some very interesting things in that study for example if if someone felt they were being disrespected and they were girls for example they would just refuse to play and if they refused to play then their team wasn't able to play and the whole deal for these boys who were very dominant and you know, misogynistic almost were like you can't treat us like that if you do that like that, you don't you don't get to play if you treat me like that that was probably the best innovation that they put in that whole process. They gave the powerless power. That was a really interesting. And they did that in like seven different play schools. It was a very good study, that one. So, yeah, it can work. And I said, I, I'm guessing that it's provides some sort of, um, you know, structure, some, some predictability and, and, and you get to do things that are enjoyable but in a very controlled not controlling way. I haven't ever thought about it until those last 10 minutes, but across those three contexts, that seems to be something that's consistent. Well, thank you, Peter, for that. Uh, Tristan, you want to have a final word? Uh, or are you good? No, thanks for inviting me, inviting me in, Ben. Appreciate it and uh, appreciate in, interacting with doctoral students who are kind of finding their journey through this whole process of mm -hmm. one being a te in teacher education and two working out how to be do do research and what they're going to and how they're going to do that so hopefully the seminar mm -hmm. allows them to have a little bit of a, a lens into different types of research and see what they can connect to Yes, and, and they every uh, week they send me emails or tell me how uh, engaging uh, it's been for them. So this has been a great course, and I will send you and Peter the course outline. Plus, you will have the availability of all the 
the podcast once we get them done. Uh, so I'm going to wrap it up now at seven thirty, just over seven thirty p.m. Kia ora, tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou katoa. Thank you uh, for sharing uh, the Sport Ed, uh, I will call it today, as a creative pedagogy, innovative pedagogy with us. Uh, thank you for your insights and also thank you for your scholarly work, Peter and Tristan. Uh, and um, we look forward to reading the stuff that's uh, in the hopper. Uh, kia ora, mates. And take care, you all. Be well in this uh, unprecedented, weird world that we're living in.